Podcast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Pietti. This evening on the Paracast, we're going to have not one guest, but two guests, which is going to make the show twice as good, or not. This evening, we're going to be talking with Frank Longo and Peter Gatilla, two people who have been involved with a really fascinating case that, uh, when I first heard about it, I know that I was skeptical about until I watched the documentary that Frank made about this really rather amazing woman and her very intense experiences, including hard photographic evidence, which especially makes it interesting to the Paracast audience. Frank, how did you first find out about Dorothy and the footage that she had been shooting over quite a number of years? I heard an interview of Peter Gatilla discussing the case on uh, Coast to Coast one evening, and uh, you know, over the years I've heard I've heard many many guests, and uh, you kind of get a sense after a while who who's kind of pulling your leg or. You know, they're not really the real deal, but there was something about Peter that uh, there was such a sincerity in, in, in his case with Dorothy and discussing the, uh, discussing her incredible story that I was really compelled to contact him to find out a little bit more and, about it and see if he could put me in touch with the, the family mm-hmm. uh, to see that there was a possibility to, to maybe do a documentary uh, about her and her life because I just, you know, the more I thought about it, I hadn't really, I'm, I'm not a part of, I guess you'd say, the UFO community, although I've been fascinated ever since uh, I was a kid growing up with Spielberg movies like E.T. and Close Encounters. It, it wasn't like, you know, a, a life quest thing in, in that angle, but I, I went on to, to be a filmmaker. But I just felt that I hadn't heard of a documentary being done that took the time to get to know somebody behind claims about seeing UFOs or, or anything like that. And I just felt like there was something that was missing. And I thought there was an opportunity because of her case being so huge, her body of work being huge, and the fact that it had been happening over three decades, that there could be something really interesting in here besides the her films, which, of course, I hadn't heard, uh, I hadn't even seen at that point. I, I was more drawn to, I guess, the human interest side of it, meaning, like, if, if this was going on for over three decades, what's the effects this has on a family? She's an old elderly woman, and her kids have grown up, and they have kids. And to me, that was really where the, the, the nugget of the idea to do the documentary came from. And, of course, the fact that she had this enormous body of work to back it up, uh, supposedly, that really drew me to the story. So, you know, I contacted Peter and uh, to find a little bit more and see if he could put me in contact with the family. That leads us to the obvious next question to Peter. How did you find out about Dorothy, and how did you first get together with her? Well, actually, I, I had known of Dorothy Isaac as far back as 1983, and uh, I had received a clipping uh, from someone uh, about Mrs. Isaac, and um, it was shown to any newspaper in uh, British Columbia. And I looked at it, and from the little piece of information that it provided, it seemed obvious to me that researchers would be all over us, like flies on a cow pie, you know. So I simply let it drift and filed the clipping and so forth. And then again, in the late 1980s, I was contacted again by another researcher who had asked me, did I know of Dorothy Isaac? And no one seemed to know very much, so I got the impression that there wasn't a lot of response uh, to what little information was circulating at the time. So anyway, one uh, evening I was camping on the Trinity River in Northern California, and uh, I 
I have my infant son with me. And I decided to take some pictures of the sky with my camera. And nothing seemed to be very obvious at the moment, but when I got back and I developed the film, I noticed that one frame had a light pattern similar to what I had seen in the uh, clipping about Dorothy Eisenhower. So I searched through my Rolodex and found an old address that had come to me by other means and sent a copy of the photo to Dorothy. And uh, she contacted me about a week or two later and said, congratulations, they've contacted you. <laughs> so, oh, boy. Uh, that, was, that, was the, <laughs> yeah, that was the beginning of a, of a long friendship, and uh, I've never regretted a moment of it. I wanted to ask just maybe a little background on Dorothy Isaac. Is she just a housewife, a professional, or what? Right. You know, I was in close contact with Dorothy for the better part of a decade, and I investigated thoroughly uh, as much as I could about her background and so forth. And um, she's an ordinary person, quite average, a great-great-grandmother, who just so happens to have the most extensive collection of photographic documentation of an ongoing relationship with uh, beings from off the earth. Now, it's interesting to me because, you know, uh, as a researcher, I was looking for certain key elements that were important to me. And among them is that there's not a blot on the escutcheon anywhere with Mrs. Isaac, not a hint of fraud or chicanery of any sort. Her truthfulness and integrity are above reproach. No delusions of grandeur. She never sought publicity, never sought to attract a following, never made claims of being an ambassador to the galactic neighborhood, <laughs> that kind of thing. And from a purely research standpoint, that was, uh, that was intriguing to me. And as I got to know her, I realized that this was just an ordinary person having extraordinary experiences. And this appealed to me uh, greatly. She is a genuine contactee, no question about it. Surely. And I would just add, uh, I mean, to, to answer your, your question, to, but the short answer is, uh, yeah, yeah, she's just a, she's just a, a housewife. Right. Now she's a great, great grandmother. <laughs> so, yeah. One of the things that's very clear in watching the documentary, gentlemen, and I watched it more than once, I found it to be incredibly fascinating. And I, I have to tell you, I had not great expectations going into it. I did a little bit of research on the web, didn't know what to think. I came out of the other end of the documentary thinking quite a bit of the situation, and we're going to talk, obviously, about that a lot tonight. But in terms of Dorothy's past, these experiences have been going on for quite a while. It's my understanding that she first encountered these lights in 1974. Is that correct? Right, right. Well, that, well, that's true, uh, as is presented in the documentary. That, that's when she started documenting what mm -hmm. she was seeing. Uh, there actually is a larger story uh, with, with Dorothy, and that being that I believe that she's probably what you would call clairvoyant, and I think it's something else she has discussed with, mm -hmm. with me, of that other family members also have, uh, I guess, you know, these abilities to see things. <laughs> um, she, she's told me that while she was a kid that she could see things. So I, guess, I, guess, I guess you could call apparitions or ghosts, uh, things like along those lines. And then it was later, uh, you know, in 1974 is when she started seeing the, uh, the craft. Peter, could you tell us a little bit about how that first happened to her? 
Right. I, I think it's important to mention that um, there are two separate and distinct phenomena occurring in Dorothy's photography. The first are the light beings. Now, these are uh, life forms made of light, for want of a better description. And they are not of flesh or materiality, but they manifest as light. And then, of course, uh, there are the UFOs uh, in all their wondrous glory. And she photographs both. Originally, it was the light beings that first appeared for her camera. And I'm, of course, abbreviating it a lot. But she asked the question, can you tell me what these UFOs are that have been appearing in this area? And she was referring to a, a spate of local sightings there. And they answered, and again, I'm paraphrasing, would you like to see one? And she said, yes. And in a brief period of time, a UFO showed up a structured craft of the usual kind, disc-shaped and so forth. And it was then uh, that she started having visitations, not only from the light beings and other manifestations, but of uh, from UFOs as well. And uh, what's interesting about this, or at least what was interesting to me, <laughs> nobody else may find it that interesting, but I, I felt there had to be an implication in this. If these light beings are spiritual in nature, and keep in mind, none of this is speculation. It's all visible in Dorothy's photography. If these light beings are spiritual in nature and seem to be powerful and able to move around freely and contact people, and they are benign and so forth, then what's the connection here? Then some of our UFO visitors must know about them, must have some contact also. And then that started leading me into an, uh, an interesting adventure with all of this. And, of course, I have seen the light beings myself. And I have, the, you know, it's impossible to describe, really. About well, you know what, remarkable. Peter, actually, I've got to rein you in a little bit because I think we're getting ahead of ourselves here. No, I just think it's important to, to qualify that photographic evidence is not proof of intention or, or any kind of corroboration of it. Just Let's just be clear about this. I have no question about what Dorothy is photographing. That's very clear. But we have to be very careful in talking about this topic um, with making connections where maybe there are none clearly indicated. But I want to jump back a minute. Well, let, let's just talk about for a moment. Let's again. Let's just, just pull back to, to let's set some stage here. When you say she was interacting with light beings, um, these came before any kind of aerial phenomenon that she saw? No. What I said was is that there were uh, two phenomena occurring simultaneously in her photography. The first phenomenon to manifest for her camera were what she calls light beings. These are not extraterrestrials of the usual sort. These are spiritual beings of some kind, and they manifest as light. Uh, they visited her several times, and she developed a kind of mental communication with them. Was this in 1974? 1974. Okay. If you read my book, you will understand the story. So anyway, she started photographing the light beings after being prompted by a dear friend who told her that unless you get some pictures of this, nobody will believe you. 
Mm -hmm. So she got a little tiny Super 8 movie camera that she had intended to be a birthday gift for her husband, opened it up, put the film in, and the next time the light beings showed up, she photographed them. And what was interesting about that was that this happened uh, over a period of time, and I can't remember exactly what that period of time was, I think many weeks. But there came a point when she asked them, there have been UFOs reported in our area. I see. You know, that kind of thing. And they said, would you like to see one? And she said, yes. And that's when UFOs turned up. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. Here's an offer for your listener. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFO-MAGA. Or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com. And they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. During the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, we're talking about a documentary called Capturing the Light about the strange case of Dorothy Isaac, who for all intents and purposes is just an ordinary woman with a normal life, but she's had some extraordinary experiences. And the folks responsible for this investigation, Frank Longo and Peter Jutilla. Okay, so basically she's getting the impression, getting the promise here from what I'm understanding the promise that she could see those things too it's all documented on the film okay i understand but of course we the listeners haven't seen the film and i haven't seen the film for i'm telling you what she 
she is reporting. Okay, sure. And what she is reporting is okay. that the light beams were first. Right. There had been sightings there, so she asked about them. And, they and, and the light like, beings, how is she communicating with these light beings? Thought impressions strictly or what? Well, it's not only that, but they, they flash, they appear... Uh, they often communicated with her audibly. Now, apparently, these beings can assume form. Now, keep in mind, I, I investigated this case for the better part of a decade. Right. And I made associations with her descriptions and from the photography to the traditions. In other words, my best guess is these are angels, for want of a better word. And they are beings of light, singular and distinct, that occupy our universe for whatever reasons. Well, we can get into all sorts of implications here. But these light beings are benign, and they were friendly, and they wanted to communicate with her. And in so doing, she asked them questions. Sometimes they'd answer audibly. Sometimes they'd answer by telepathy or by mental means. And keep in mind now, I've had this experience myself, so I, I clearly understand what it involves. So there's really no question about it here. And, uh, you know, for me, it was a mind-blowing experience, to say the least. Now, in the documentary, she talks about the very first time in 1974 when she films one of these lights in the sky, or is it that uh, she interacts with it with a flashlight? She's flashing it, it's flashing back. Then she talks about later that night having a contact experience not with light beings, but with physical material beings she describes as men. Can you give us an insight into that evening? Right. Well, this has actually happened quite a bit. During my contact with Dorothy, she would uh, call me on the phone, sometimes very late at night when they were there. And, uh, you know, having investigated the unexplained and UFOs for night of 40 years now, you develop a certain sense about these things, and I could definitely sense that she was in communication with something during those phone calls. Now, these beings are quite remarkable. I mean, euphonauts, for example. I mean, they are so far ahead of us. I mean, in so many respects that it's difficult to, to put it into, you know, conventional terms. She, they're able to manifest, beam down, so to speak. They move around surfaces. On occasion, her ceiling would open up. And this is a fascinating piece of footage because I have a, an example of this really? where her ceiling actually opens. It's very strange. You know, I've tried for years. I've done many programs. I've talked to many interviewers. It's all, it's, I always tell people, listen, you've got to look at the footage. I've been trying to get people to look at the footage, people who should know what they're doing, and, and then conclude from that. But in trying to describe it in language, you run into problems only because we don't have any examples. Not in reality. We might have them in movies and television, but we don't have them in reality. So it's hard to make any references here that make sense. But, for, for instance, one time her ceiling opened up, and several beings came right down into her room. Don't ask me how they did this, but they. Well, now wait. You're saying you have this, the footage of this event? I have examples. I have collected of Dorothy Isaac's footage going back many years. And this is the one thing I, I need to point out to people. Keep in mind, she doesn't only have light patterns. Uh, she has images of UFO interiors, for example, uh, UFO occupants, 
and on and on it goes, not just light patterns and so on. Okay, and, now I want you to also, maybe you could also explain to our listeners what these UFO beings look like. Are they the gray <laughs> aliens? Are they blonde-haired beings that look humanoid, reptilians, insect toys? What are they? Uh, well, I've never, I've never liked calling them grays anyway. That's very trendy. But actually, they're more taupe. <laughs> anyway, yes, she's just, she's, the images show little big-headed elfin sly-eyed creatures. Some of the footage shows ordinary human-like people like us in the UFOs and, and so forth. In the course of her many experiences, she's seen various life forms, some of them that are somewhat like us and some that are not. So it's really all there. And keep in mind, she makes no claim at understanding any of it. I mean, she's just as baffled as most of us would be. And uh, even though they have given her information, she doesn't. She admits she doesn't understand much of it. They once told her how they fly and how they come from one place to another, but she didn't understand it. <laughs> I, I now, can understand. I can understand that. Now, now Frank, <clears throat> let me ask you a question, though. Um, in the documentary, there are, I think, one or two stills that sort of look like human-shaped beings. They're a bit off in the distance. They're, they're a little inconclusive. And there's another piece of footage of what looks like some kind of a rectangular window. Right. And there are some it, kind of in shadow. It's not real obvious. They're not real clear. There is something that, that looks like what uh, Peter's describing, but some of the, the, the descriptions I'm hearing of footage here are, are not in the documentary. Why is that? I mean, that thing of the ceiling opening up sounds fantastic. Where's that footage? Well, I mean, let me, let me give you uh, my, my my angle for the say. I mean, the stuff you guys are getting into, that that's great. And as you know, I mean, you watch the documentary, I really don't delve into any of that. For me as a filmmaker, what I could sink my teeth into are, uh, was uh, the actual films themselves, meaning physically examining them. Uh, mm -hmm. And maybe maybe I should paint a picture so so your audience kind of gets a sense of what you know I, I'm looking at or what you know what what her films are uh, because it is very multi layered and it can get confusing. <laughs> looking at her footage, she shoots on eight millimeter and eight millimeter shoots at eighteen frames per second. Right. Okay, right. so when she shoots. Uh, what you know, some would call lights in the sky. While she's shooting, there's always a burst of light that occurs. Uh, or not always, but you know, a, a large portion of her materials uh, are these bursts that occur while she's filming. And it's not until she gets the footage back and she stops on that one frame where you see that something very odd is going on, very strange, and just from my perspective. Uh, and that is, that burst of light is only occurring on that one eighteenth of a frame, meaning right. the prior frame to the flash, there is no light leaking onto that frame, and the frame after the flash, there's no light leaking onto that frame, which is, I know, physically impossible. Uh, and then within those bursts of light, it gets even stranger because then there's new images that occur, and uh, sometimes uh, it can be a, a cacophony of light streaking across, across the sky that create new patterns. Uh, basically going distances across the frame that aren't possible in one-eighteenth of a second. Uh, sometimes, as you know, I mentioned, you had mentioned it, uh, David, that uh, they looked like, uh, almost like an earthly type people. It's like a portrait. 
And then sometimes some of the flash frames will have something that looks like a location almost, you know, like a body of water or a landmass. So for, for me, that, that's where I realized, because going in, I had, I mean, like I was going on, on the, the human interest aspect of it, but it wasn't until I actually got my hands on the physical footage that I realized actually there's something very special going on here, because I know that none of this is possible. So, uh, like you, you had mentioned earlier, you know, you know it comes down to that, well, is this, is this person making this up or not? Well, let's get to, to know Dorothy and then you can make up your mind. But as far as the philosophical stuff goes, you know, that, that I, I kind of avoided, not avoided, I just, uh, I, I wanted to make this because it's such an amazing story. This woman's story is so amazing and her footage is so incredible that I just felt like it, you know, it really needed to be out there for people to, to well, sure. know about. And I just sure. didn't want to turn anybody off. And I know, you know, once you get into that, all the other stuff, it's just like, there's <laughs> just so many things that come into play, whether it's your own background or religion and things like that, that just make a lot of people angry. I'm just going, hey, look, just look at the films because this is what's amazing. And then it's great because I think these kind of conversations are great because that's where it will lead to next. I just wanted to get this woman's story out there. Oh, absolutely, but, Frank. Yeah. No, listen, I'm not questioning that at all. Um, and in fact, I can confirm that what you just said before, the idea that you could somehow manually with a, an 8 millimeter camera make a motion that would capture in only one frame of 8 millimeter footage is pretty much impossible. You know, and then to look at the complexity in terms of the variation in colorization that happens in these, what appear to be in the in the in between frames, the you know the two frames on either side of the event frames, you have what are either single points of light, you know, a single point of light or multiple single points of light, and then what ends up happening in that in between single frame of the change in brightness, the shift in shapes. I mean, that is, there's absolutely no way, uh, you're right, and, and I can confirm this as someone who knows about this topic, there's no way to create that artificially without a tremendous amount of effort. I mean, there's one frame in the, in, um, that's shown in the documentary where it seems to spell out multiple lights, spell her name out. Now, <laughs> yeah, I know. That is, <laughs> that, is that is an astounding frame. My yeah. point being that when you have frames like that, that really compounds the intensity of those what I call event frames in a way that really, I mean, as someone who's done visual effects and worked in industrial light magic, where I know that's that's mentioned in the documentary or on another piece of the footage that we haven't talked about yet that we'll save for later, but I have no doubts that, you know, Dorothy did not do that in camera in some covert fashion. That in, just in not 1974, possible. right? In 1974, yeah, nonetheless. Absolutely not. No. Well, there was no industrial light and magic in 1974. <laughs> right, anyway. right. And she uh, was yeah. able to create that. She certainly missed her calling. Uh, she yeah. should have worked for, for industrial light and magic. Oh, no, absolutely not. Uh, yeah, I, I, personally, I have no, no, no concerns or questions about that. It's just that when Peter is describing footage where you're seeing, and Peter, correct me if I'm wrong here, because this footage is not in the documentary, where you're seeing close-ups of beings, I mean, that would really, talk about really driving the story home. I mean, those those frames sound amazing. Where are they? Well, you know, Dorothy Isaac is amazingly indifferent to whether any anyone believes her or not. And in the course of investigating her case and what and her claims, it was my objective to experience these things for myself. Mm -hmm. And I've always said that to researchers, novices, and others to look seek the experience because there's no substitute for it. 
Sure. And so that's what I set out to do. Now, her footage, if she's a layperson, if she has no expertise in these things, and what I tried to do in the last year of my contact or work on this case was to find somebody with technical expertise to go through the footage and archive all of it and mm -hmm. do this before Dorothy leaves us because she was there. Right. Uh, she knows things about it that no one else can do, that no, no one else knows. Sure. And in her footage, she was clear to me that she did not want it all just shuttled out into the public willy-nilly. And I asked her about this many times, and people need to realize that her light beings and her experiences are like children to her. And she's very uh, proprietary about it in the sense that she does not want to open the door to a flood of inquiries and uh, a potential mischief over it. But, but let, let me just add to that. Now, now that she is, like Peter mentioned, she is getting older. She's uh, 86. She is feeling a sense of urgency to really do exactly what Peter is saying, and that is... Uh, uh, itemize, if you will, all her footage, right. and and to and to answer your other question, David, about like where is that shot, the, that kind of thing. I also haven't hadn't had the opportunity to go through all the all of her footage. You know, hopefully, I mean, I just spoke with the family the other day, and I'm trying to find ways to, uh, as you know, by the other documentary, the part of the part of the. What I was attempting to do was to, to help get donations to transfer all her 8-millimeter right. into the digital format. Because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like Peter said, she's not technically inclined. So what she would do is she'd shoot these, these, these films and then put them in a box, put them in the garage. And unfortunately, some of them have deteriorated mm -hmm. over time. Yeah, that's, that's one really of the biggest things about film, sure. That yeah, film exactly. Has a so life. Today, whether you're in business or simply want to share something with friends or family, email and voicemail sometimes just aren't enough. That's why you should try GoToMeeting, a web conferencing solution that will revolutionize how you communicate with your business associates, family, and friends. The ability to host online meetings is an absolute must for today's business. With GoToMeeting.com, it's just like you're all in the same room. Unlimited meetings for one flat rate means you can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. Try it yourself, free for 30 days. Just visit gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. Try GoToMeeting free today. You're in the in the Powercast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, Peter Gatilla and Frank Longo, responsible for a documentary film called Capturing the Light about the strange case of Dorothy Isaac, who apparently met light beings, UFO knots, whatever, took lots of pictures. So what you want to do here, I gather, at this point in time is to try to take all the footage or as much footage as you can, digitize it so it could be preserved for posterity. What about restoration? Because if this film has some of this film stock has deteriorated, are there any plans to try to restore that? No, but thank you. Uh, thank you for bringing that up because there might be some possibility to, to save some of the stuff. You know, my first goal was just to get transferred what is possible to get transferred and, and see some of these things that I haven't seen because, you know, there, there, there are other occurrences on 
like Peter said, you know, there's some that she had been reserved about, but now that she is getting to a certain point in her life, she wants to make sure that it does all get out. I mean, it's, she's very protective of the body of work and, and how it was looked at. And so out of context, it, it, it can. I don't think it does the story justice. But at any rate, there, there's certainly things that I, I do want to see that I have not seen yet, but apparently is there. And uh, and hopefully that will happen. I mean, hope, you know, I want to say I appreciate you guys having, a, having us on because, you know, a lot of people don't know about the story. And hopefully this awareness of it will, will bring forward the opportunity to, to ensure that her stuff does get transferred. Right. Uh, let me add a postscript to that as well, that Dorothy's presence is important in any archiving that might take place because she was there. And in spite of her age now, she has a remarkable memory. Uh, she takes one look at a frame and she remembers what that was about. And getting her testimony along with um, the rest of it, I think, would be critical, at least for future generations, you know, because she was there and she did it and the information was given to her. Peter, let me, let me ask you a question about the nature of that information. Was she told that there was specific meaning in the imagery itself? Was there anything in terms of value of the sequence of images presented? Is this yeah, a conversation? Yeah. Excellent question. Uh, this has come up now. It's interesting. You know, it's so fascinating. There were just so much of it. and I mean, I found myself overwhelmed over the first few years of trying to deal with it. For example, they gave her script and the script was luminous and appeared on the ceiling of her room. She called me one evening while this was taking place, and some of it sounded, at least the first uh, bits of, of, of script sounded to me like Sanskrit. And, and what they conveyed to her was that they were giving her all the languages from the very beginning of the spoken word and the written word uh, all the way through to the present. I mean, that, that blew my mind. I mean, you know, I believe she might have some of this on film, actually. Hmm. But there, there, was, there was so much information that was given to her in terms of what the flashes meant. Um, as a matter of fact, as I recall, she received a rather mysterious letter from a group of scientists. Someone would have to ask Dorothy about this again, or I may, if anyone's interested. And these people, I believe, were connected to a panel of scientists that, uh, at Berkeley. Now, I, I could be wrong. You know, it's not written in concrete here. But they wrote her a note, and they said, it is a language. What you're looking at is a language. And, and that's about all they said. And Dorothy began to take another look at the light patterns and the flashes and so on. And when you're looking at the, do at the footage and you see a very bright flash, well, this is, a, this is a communications moment when they're delivering something to Dorothy and so quite naturally it explodes in the lens. You know? But yeah, the, 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 apparently if someone would like to take a look at this, it would be most helpful, I think, that there is some sort of, what's the word I'm looking for, kind of encoding? I don't know. Well, anyway. sure. No, that's exactly right. There's that one frame I brought up where you can clearly see her name. And I'm wondering if there are other frames that you guys have found that indicate other clear examples of words and even uh, other character sets like Sanskrit or Hebrew or Arabic. Right. right. 
not, not me personally. I mean, but uh, then again, I don't know maybe what those patterns mean that are created mm-hmm. either. But no, I guess specifically, I, I hadn't seen uh, another like writing like sample like that. Well, I have some here, so you'll have to come visit Frank, and I'll be happy. <laughs> Why do you guys keep telling me about footage I didn't know about while I was making the documentary? David, we have to get on a plane, David, I think. Yeah, yeah, l- l- listen, listen, keep in mind, I was in very close contact with Dorothy Isaac for almost a decade, and uh, there was a lot that uh, that we information that we exchanged and conversations that we had uh, that were quite interesting. And as I said, she's always... You know, if I haven't said it, I'll say it now. She has always given out a blanket challenge to anyone. Skeptics, believers, unbelievers, scientists, anybody. Rather than quibble about what the films mean or what they show or whether she is delusional or no, she'd be happy to have them there, have them look at the footage, and possibly engage the process, so to speak, in the presence of observers. Now, keep in mind, I did this in 2000, and she did this for me. The first evening I was there, a ball of light manifested in the middle of the room and shot right up through the ceiling. Now, I had five people with me, so this is is not an instance of Gatillo seeing things. (laughs) And we all saw it. And then numerous small craft, including a huge triangular-shaped craft, came right over the apartment there. Now, you know what was strange about this? We were within earshot of the Vancouver International Airport. That was what was so fascinating to me. And this harkened back to the very early stages of Dorothy's photography, because the first thing she did was call the airport. And she said, "Have you had you had any UFOs reported to you or on your radar, et cetera, et cetera? And they said no. Now, of course, they could have been lying. They tend to do that sort of thing. But she felt they were telling her the truth, that they didn't have any reports and that nothing nothing was shown on the on the radar there. This is, someone asked me years ago, can they pick who sees them? That could be an answer to that. I don't know. But I do know that she's willing to let anyone interested challenge her claims for the photography. You know, this is very interesting, and I wanted to bring it up because through the years we've heard so many claims of people being in contact with other beings. (laughs) And as you know, David and I have had a few skirmishes with a few people who come across with some fanciful claims. And I've followed through the years all the stories, George Adamski and all the rest of the people. But now we're hearing a totally different kind of story. And what impresses me so much about it is that David is the world's greatest skeptic of photography. And if David Bietney is impressed, there has to be something going on here. Go take a look. I mean, this is, people have argued with me as if I have something to do with it. I simply said, look, here's an ideal witness, uh, completely clean in every direction. No sign of fraud, no sign of chicanery of any kind, totally upright. you got a good case here. Now go look at the movies. This is live-action movie film. Not no. digital, not digital video, not still. Got thousands of those circulating. This is a little lady, now with all due respect, a little old lady, who has been had this remarkable contact that has been steady and ongoing, what, for 34 years. 
Let's talk about let, Peter. Let's talk about the cameras for a minute. Let me ask you some questions. I know these are probably some of these are covered in the documentary, but for the sake of our audience, she shot footage with more than one camera, correct? Right. Well, she had an instance of doing that. Yeah. Only an instance, because yeah, well, she's had she's had tests when uh, part of uh, the documentary covers when Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who you're on, it's probably very familiar with, had heard of her footage and saw her footage and then wanted to meet with her and in order to protect his name you know he came with a battery of tests and one of them was bringing several cameras and having her shoot with those cameras all right. meanwhile taking her camera away and sending it away actually to be examined and taken apart and so she just went through the task and when you know she thought they were there uh she went out and shot and she said you know dropped the camera picked the next one up and did it again and when the footage came back and by the way they they brought their own film stock and then they also unloaded the cameras themselves and also sent it to their own labs Mm-hmm. And when the results came back, uh, the image showed up on all three, no, from the three different sources, the three different cameras that they had used. So that took out of the equation any any malfunction of the camera that she was using specifically. And that camera as well uh, checked out that there was nothing right. wrong with it. Yeah. Right. Oh, well, that's not the least bit, uh, you know, uh, innovative. I mean, one well-known UFO researcher, and I won't mention any names, fell asleep while looking at some of Dorothy's footage. He bolted awake and said, it must be dust on the lens. <laughs> uh, no, that, that stuff is not any dust on unless dust blows. Yeah, no. And I, I, sent, I sent small clips and contacted some of the wealthier aficionados. We've all heard of them. And one fellow with lots and lots of money who could probably have done wondrous things with us wrote me back uh, like a 26-page tract on his view of the cosmos. Another one preferred to sink his money in a bull farm somewhere in the Rockies. And and it's uh, it's amazing to me the reception uh, to this interesting case that probably would give us an awful lot of valuable information. Very frankly, this particular case, the case of Dorothy Isaac, has not gotten a lot of major attention in the UFO field, as far as I can tell. Certainly not in comparison with so many other contact claimants. But before I tell you more... Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. 
You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. We're talking about a documentary called Capturing the Light, featuring the story of Dorothy Isaac and the folks behind it, Frank Longo, Peter Jutilla. Gentlemen, how does one get a copy of this documentary? You can get a copy at CapturingTheLightDVD.com. It's also available at Amazon as well. But that's the thing, too, the fact that you think with all this huge amount of evidence compared to all these other so-called contact cases in the UFO field, why do they get more attention than this one? Because they're looking for better press agents. No, they're looking. (laughs) I I think you've got it right. (laughs) Well, I just from from uh, my experience and the stories that have been told to me from the family is that, you know, it's twofold. One is uh, once Dr. J. Heineck was there and he saw her work and, and believed that she was certainly capturing, you know, what she was capturing was really happening. He told her actually not to go out with it, but to actually keep to herself and just amass, keep shooting, keep shooting and amass a body of work. And don't affiliate with anybody. Don't affiliate, right. especially as he called it the lunatic uh, fringe, uh, because then she would be associated with that. So she really did follow that and kept to herself. Now, the next part is that, you know, people did hear about it, you know, friends and tell friends and neighbors, and then, they, you know, word got out and it would be a, a story here or there, but usually in a sound bite or, or if somebody did try to cover the story, it was squashed in with other stories. And they really uh, grew, the family, when I say they, uh, kind of grew to distaste the media in general because they felt like they weren't doing justice to Mom's story. And so, in fact, they were going to go ahead and just put something together themselves and was working with the production company who, in the end, pretty much took their money and ran. And so they just, their experience, uh, one after the other, while they were trying to get the story out, would just leave a bad taste in their mouth. And, and quite frankly, it took me a while to convince them to allow me to do a documentary on them. They just had a bad taste in their mouth. And so uh, that, that's partially why, really, the story didn't really get out. And what about the, the Center for UFO Studies, the organization that Dr. Hynek was involved with? Do they have official positions on this or not? No. That's a Peter, yeah, that's a Peter question. No, as a matter of fact, in, in the many years I've been involved in the field, I've had contact, direct or indirect, with most of these people, including Dr. Hynek. And there is an interest, there was an interest, but nowadays most people have a vested uh, interest in what they're doing, their own pet projects, and I don't think they want to bother with it. It's really just this mm. simple. Most organizations, and I've known them all at one time or another, you know, give me the usual banquet of oohs and ahs, but I don't think they know how to classify Dorothy Isaac because there's a lot more to the story that we're not discussing here tonight. And by the way, if anyone wants to contact me, I'll be happy to share this with them. But Is there a reason why you're not sharing that with us, these other aspects? Oh, no, not, not at all. If it comes up and if we have time, uh, you'll probably not be able to shut me up. But the point is... No efforts being made to do that, my friend. <laughs> well, the, po- the point is, you know, in the nine years I, I was involved with Dorothy, there was a lot of a lot of information that involved a different view of UFOs, what they mean, why they're here, and so on. And this is a point that I'd like to make any time I talk on this matter, is that no book author, no expert, no maven, no ultra-enthusiast, no lecturer on the UFO topic 
can prove that he or she has successfully answered the big three questions. There's a lot of speculation, a lot of theorizing, some of it interesting, admittedly, but not one can prove that they have answered the same three questions that we've been asking since the advent of the modern UFO controversy. And that is, where are they from? How do they get here from there? And what are they doing here? No one, not one expert can prove that he or she can answer or prove uh, that she or he knows the, the answers to these things. Now, my, it's my belief that Dorothy Isaac, a tiny five-foot-tall great-great-grandmother, probably brings us closer to answering those questions than just about anybody else. Okay, you just raised an issue here. Did the beings who communicated with her tell her where they were from? Yes, and there were, now keep in mind, it's not just one group. I mean, there, there were many groups. Some of this is so fascinating. I'll give you an example. She once told me, called me up one evening, and she had had a contact for some very tall, I don't know what I prefer to call them, non-terrestrial, they're extraterrestrial. They came from a conveyance, a UFO, and they were very tall. And she told me that with this one man was his daughter, and his daughter was 11 years old. I presume by our standards. And she was already over six feet tall. And this man was very tall, probably seven, eight feet tall. And she she told me that, you know, she said, I, I asked her this question, but I'll give you an example. Many years ago, I started looking into cases that involved resident extraterrestrials. Does that sound strange? It is. But I started looking into this because I had had several reports where people had claimed to have contact with extraterrestrials that look like us. We're also, you know, imbued with this idea that they have to be these little elfin types. We don't realize that it's possible that some of them look like us. Now, if they look like us, there's a possibility they could be with us on the Earth and we'd never really know it. And so... I started looking into these cases, and I ran into several that were quite interesting in my view, and I started putting together a series of papers on the possibility that no one at that point in ufology had ever taken seriously, that maybe some of them are here, and then, you know, investigating and, and you know, studying us, uh, mingling with our society, and that kind of thing. Now, you know, what was the possibility of this? So I started researching on this, and uh, it looked interesting and promising to me. And then Dorothy contacted me during my work with her, and she said, you know, Peter, she said, that's more true than you know. He said, because I've talked to some of them, and some of them have visited me, and you couldn't tell the difference between an ordinary earthling and these visitors. And so it was funny because I asked her about the eyes. I said, was there any any distinguishing characteristic, <laughs> a little like the pinky finger on the invaders, you know? And I said, listen, is there any distinguishing characteristic that I should look for? No glowing eyes. The eyes don't suddenly become luminous. <laughs> well, it's funny you say this. It's not the glowing eyes, but there is a difference in the eyes. So I was. I happened to be my wife and I and my family. I went to a restaurant in Santa Monica called Shotzi's. And I don't know where you fellas are. You're probably not in California. I know what it is, though. Sure. Yeah, it was Schwarzenegger's restaurant. It's no longer there. But I was sitting across from a man, and he looked over at me. And I looked back at him, and there was a young woman with him. And she looked over at me, and I looked back at her. And I said, man, interesting. Those people look interesting to me. 
And I sat there, and they got up, and they left. And when they did, the man had to be easily basketball-sized in height, <laughs> basketball player-sized in height. I would say probably in the vicinity of six five, six eight. And the young girl that was with him was also very tall, probably close to six feet. Now, they may have been just ordinary folks, but the man stopped and looked at me. And when he did, I could sense that there was a difference in the eye and the, in the color of the eye and so forth. Well, I told Dorothy about this, and I said, yeah, it's probably nothing. Probably just ordinary people that look a little strange. <laughs> but she said, you know, it's possible that you might have run into some of them because they are, they have been here and they have moved around our societies and, and so forth. And as a matter of fact, in my book, I have a, uh, a chapter there called, I'm trying to remember the name of it now, Coney Island. And this was so fascinating to me because she said they once came down and picked her up. And uh, I, I believe that was the incident where she had lost her camera. I did, forgot her camera. And she said, I want to take my camera. And as she was floating up, the camera floated up right in front of her. And she grabbed hold of the camera. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, this, this, uh, this story goes back a long way. But anyway, in the book, I talk about her visit to Coney Island. And the object hovered right over the amusement park. And she asked them, she said, you know, aren't you afraid of being detected there? And their their response was nobody will notice, you know. I mean, you know, it just it's a lot of lights and a lot of activity, and no one would even notice this object, which only had three lights, one on the front and two on the back, and it just hovered there. Oh, I don't know, several hundreds of feet up. But she went with this man and his daughter to the amusement park. Now, on the face of it, it sounds rather odd, but it struck me as significant in a way because, it, you know, who would make this kind of thing up? I mean, it was just so odd. And she, and she said to me, she, I asked them, how are they afraid of somebody noticing them? But they, because of the way people on this planet look and dress, and we are all different sizes and shapes and heights, no, people would just walk past them thinking that, that, that he's just a tall guy and, and so on. And so and, uh, we're not going to say that Shaq is one of them. Pardon? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? No. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, well, no, no. See, but the whole point in all of this is that as I investigated all of this, I was introduced to whole new ideas that I never before considered. As a conventional type researcher, it never dawned on me to take a look at the possibility that, they're, that they can come around here often and move around unnoticed virtually. Peter, actually, you, you might want to read Jacques Vallée's books. He postulated those types of cases uh, a number of years ago. So uh, certainly, I know Jacques, I know Jacques yeah. Vallée, and I was way ahead of him. <laughs> okay, yeah. Anyway, don't, but, don't, uh, don't get me started on Jacques Vallée. Why? I don't. Maybe we shouldn't go down that road. Well, no, man. Listen, this is the Paracast. We go anywhere. Okay, you know, you raised a point there, and you know, we're getting to the close of the first hour of the show. But I can't say I know Jacques Vallée either. I met him once or twice in my life. Okay, I gather there's something being said there or unsaid. So maybe you could say it. Well, I won't go any further down that road, but I'll tell you something. If Jock's listening to this program, he'll know why I'm a bit irked. It goes a long way back, and uh, I won't go any further with it. But let me tell you something. There have been other researchers who have looked into a lot of these things. There are references in many books and articles and so on. And I knew some of these people. And, of course, these things have been discussed, and the possibilities uh, debated, and some cases have been examined, of course. 
But what fascinated me was that in Dorothy's experience, that she she had had contact with a number of extraterrestrials, some that looked like us, some that didn't, some that were more like clones or robots. Because people have asked me many times, well, what about these abduction experiences and things like that? That's not very nice, and on and on it goes. And I asked Dorothy about this as well, and she said, well, you know, some of these extraterrestrials are like clones. They look identical to one another. They are like robots. They have an assignment to do, and they do it. And it's not that they're hostile. It's just that they're indifferent. They don't have any uh, feeling about that. Yeah, I would like to add that I, I found that interesting as well, is that a lot of the stories that I hear, again, you know, I'm, I'm kind of new to all the, this realm, but, you know, doing a documentary, I learned a lot very quickly. But the stories that I generally heard were, you know, on the negative with the negative connotation of, you know, being taken, abducted, unable to remember or having to go through hypnosis to rec recount their experiences, all of which were, were never Dorothy's experiences. I mean, it couldn't have been further from that. And I thought that was interesting. It was always a positive experience that she had. And I just wanted to add that. that well, yeah, and that's been a bone of contention because there's been, a, a you know, an entire movement afoot in this country to build a case of invasion, uh, you know, flying saucers invading Earth kind of thing in, in, very, in very, various permutations of that idea and so Dorothy comes along and says well you know what I mean I've talked with them and I've had contact with them and they never posed any threat to me and I ran into this problem quite a few times and so that, I think that's part of the reason among some groups why they've not bothered to take another look at Dorothy's work. Because she has positive experiences and they really want the aliens to be here to harm us rather than help <laughs> us is that what it's all about? Yeah, yeah well it, fly, it flies in the face of that whole idea and how do you explain that? And I don't know that they want to tackle that idea. I think they're happy with what they've got. Earth needs protecting. I mean, that's part of the message of the light beings was that the planet Earth is in a bad way. And people have said to me, well, well how do they arrive at this conclusion? And it's very simple. Even euthanauts who come here and visit have a global view. I mean, they don't. most of us living here are aware of the pockets of niceness that exist everywhere. But when these visitors come to the planet, they get a global view and they can see that the earth is in turmoil. I mean, there's random violence, pestilence. Peter, I, I, mean, I don't think you need to come for another planet to see that there's a vast <laughs> amount of turmoil on earth. I mean, actually, most of my encounters with people involved in the UFO field seem to get behind the idea of the quote-unquote space brother, uh, a term that we have big problems with. And, and I'll just say to you, before we finish the first hour, one of the things, if we're going to be honest about this whole topic, one of the things we have to realize, and, and I want to make this point, this, you're not going to be happy when I say this, Peter, I promise. But one of the things we have to realize is that Dorothy's telling us her information received from whatever she interacted with, which in no way indis under, indicates whether or not whatever's interacting with her is actually being honest. This is something that I think is very important. And one of the things that we'll talk about a bunch in the second hour is that I, I took specific note in the documentary where she says that at a certain point when she was negative about the experience, because she talks about this in the documentary, when she had sort of not positive feelings, when her church indicated to her that maybe, you know, they brought up the whole demon issue, and all of a sudden she questioned it, she says the nature of the experience changed as well. And I think in that, there is definitely a clue. The clue 
language is as old as metaphysics, metaphysics itself, and it, that, it, it is simple. It's we are where we dwell, and you know we we create a lot of what happens to us and what happens around us. I mean, this is an old idea that's been circulating for a few thousand years. So, if you want to look at something in a negative way, you can build a pretty good you know pile of negativity to deal with. And in her case, there was nothing in the actions of the light beings to indicate that they were negative. Uh, that was the whole point. And, I mean, actions speak louder than words. If, they, if they're not acting in a negative way and not doing anything that implies it, then there was no reason to assume they were until people started planting this idea in our mind. Well, I'll tell you what, we'll go into that. that. Frank, we'll go into that positive and negative aspects or the potentials about her experiences in Part 2 on the Paracast. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Dana. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. This is our number two of the Paracast, and we're talking to Frank Longo, Peter Gatilla, about a documentary called Capturing the Light, telling the story of Dorothy Isaac, who's an ordinary great-grandmother, right now getting on in years, but someone who's had a normal life with children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, but she's also been in touch with beings from out there. Something that I guess we haven't really established too much, and you were kind of vague about it, or both of you were, Specifically, another planetary system, another star system from within the Earth. Did they say where we come from? It really wasn't clarified to me. This is Frank, and I can say, uh, you know, I was, I'm not being vague about uh, anything because that's just not my expertise, uh, the philosophical side of it. I can talk to you about anything regarding the documentary and, and the actual films. But I can paraphrase what, I, what I, I, you know, Dorothy has told me, but. Uh, uh, maybe, maybe Peter wants to answer this. Uh, yeah, I'll be happy to, Frank. It's um, you know that's one of those sixty-four dollar questions. The fact is, in Dorothy's experience, they are from many places, our material universe, and from other realities or planes of, uh, of existence. Now, these are typical. I'm sure your listeners have heard all the stories. It's been you know mentioned many times in folklore and tradition and so on. But it basically says that they are able to come from our universe, our physical universe, by a mysterious means, and they appear in our world, and when they're done, they leave and go back to theirs. Now, these are planets, and they're in galaxies and in distant places, and then you have another group that arrives from other realities, and these are more involved with the light beings in a spiritual kind of thing. Now, keep in mind, Dorothy Isaac is a very spiritual person. She is not a an avid churchgoer, but she definitely has a spiritual view of life, and therefore much of the contact between her and the light beings was about the human spirit and the human soul and why we are living here and what this means and so forth. Now, that's an entirely different realm far and away from our UFO occupants that come here by means of conveyances, ships, craft, 
and so forth. But there seems to be a link, and, and the only thing I've been able to piece together on this is that because certain of our visitors in UFOs are so powerful, they can appear to disappear. <laughs> they can travel great distances in the blink of an eye. They can manipulate matter and so on, that they are almost, even though they remain material, almost in, on a spiritual level, in a sense. They have great power. And the light beings, which are part of a family of beings that watch over the earth and do the bidding of the divine and on and on, more or less act as the overseers of much of this. And uh, part of Dorothy's message has been that they're here to help us, but they can, they can only influence, they can't interfere. This is a kind of universal law. And the same holds true with UFO occupants and whatever their interests might be. They can show up, we can see them, they have to fly away. They really can't interfere with us. And part of this has to do with the universal law as it was outlined, that we are like kids in school. It's, if anyone ha out there has a, is a parent and has a child, you know that you can do the child's homework for him. But And great, he probably will get a good grade, but he's not going to learn anything. So the basic idea is that we're, uh, we have to solve our problems and we have to find our way out of this mess that we've made of things. Unfortunately, according to some of the information given to Dorothy, the planet is getting old. It's been going on like this for countless generations. Uh, from that, I sort of pieced together a concept I call the advent of light from some of the information that was imparted to Dorothy. And that is at some point in our planet's future, we're going to be given a bolt of light in a sense that's going to transform much of what uh, is going on. But all of this has been part of the information and there's been so much of it given to Dorothy. And I've tried to go through it. I've tried to analyze it as carefully as I can. And the only proof we have of any of this is in the filming. Obviously, something is there. It's, there's no doubt about it. And it's been steady and ongoing for 34 years. So there's no doubt that Dorothy Isaac is in contact with something. What that yeah. is, is, of course, the question. Um, one thing I would comment, though, uh, Peter, is that even though it certainly makes sense to have this idea of no interference, uh, it looks, from my point of view, like if you look at the history of UFO interactions, just in terms of UFOs and aircraft that have been documented in the last 60 years, uh, it looks like a lot of them are being bad little puppies and, 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 inter, and interfering. I mean, that's a matter of opinion. I mean, well, I mean, if you if you do some of the things they're supposed to do, that's interference. No, but if you abduct, they, yeah, but you know what? Wanted, sure. No, no. If they wanted to take us over, if they wanted to really do something dirty to us, they could have done it long ago. Right, but abductions. Sure, but abductions, visiting somebody through a period of a number of years, as that's they're doing a, with Mrs. Isaac. Well, that's not interfering in the lives of individuals, possibly. Right, but, but that's, they're, they're making that person, suddenly their life changes completely over what well, it was before. Yeah, that's interference. Again, we're talking about the globe. We're talking about the planet. To discuss individuals on an individual basis is quibbling. 
The fact is, of course, I mean, you could interpret interference versus influence in any way that pleases you. But on a global, in a global sense, they have not interfered. I mean, people go to work every morning. They drive the freeways and the highways and the, and the turnpikes, and the sky isn't awash in flying saucers. I mean, traffic down on Main and Fourth is it being stopped by Bigfoot crossing the street. I mean, look, the, the fact is there has been remarkably little change in this world uh, because of UFOs. Now, I understand from a researcher's point of view that this may be questionable. Uh, look, I've spent a lifetime investigating UFOs, and for us, they're everywhere, all the time. But for the average person, there's no real immediacy. There's no real, you know, no real change brought about by the subject. Now, on an individual basis, sure, one might say that Dorothy's life was interfered with in some way. But, you know, again, on a global scale, nothing has really changed. And I've heard all the stories about abductions, and I've seen the videos with people kicking and flailing their feet and all of this. But the bottom line is, what effect has this had on the planet? Virtually none. Well, I, mean, I don't know. that. Like you said, though, Peter, that's certainly arguable. And... Um, I'm not trying to detract from anything that's been given to Dorothy in terms of information, but I think if one is going to be a researcher, one looks for triangulation of information. Um, I think that's really important. And, you know, when you realize, for example, that Dorothy has had these incredible experiences in terms of the stuff she's filmed, one of the things that I discovered, um, I was watching a documentary one of our forum uh, participants had put up on the Paracast forums. It was an old documentary from the 70s called UFOs Are Real. And uh, there's something in there that is really fascinating about how it relates to Dorothy Ized's uh, filmed evidence. There was an incident in New Zealand, over New Zealand, in uh, late December of 1978. There was a TV news crew on an airplane, and they shot footage of this really interesting light that seemed to be pacing the plane. Now, this was, uh, by the way, uh, an object that was being captured on radar, ground radar, right. while it was also being seen from the plane's radar. And they shot a bunch of footage of this. And there is this fascinating thing that happens um, in the analysis of that footage that occurred. You see it, pretty much exactly what happens in Dorothy's footage. You see this um, situation where in between two frames where this thing looks like a solid light, there is a single frame where it does a very large motion that, again, supersedes anything that would have happened in the camera from any kind of natural movement. It changes color from red to white. Red and white lights are something that Dorothy talks about a lot in her footage and that show up a lot in her footage. It does this in a single frame. Now, that is a, that is a corroboration. Yeah, that's absolutely amazing. I wish I would have known about that piece of footage. Uh, well, let's put, let's, it's similar. I, I don't know that it corroborates anything. Well, I mean, this is. I mean, I just I find well, it fascinating because it does corroborate the, that if these light beings. Well, what's, what's, what's with corroboration? I mean, the fact well, is, well, we, we we have hundreds of yards of footage from all sorts of sources. Some of it looks like other things, and some of it no, not. That, that's that's fine. That's no, fine. Peter, I'm, I'm being very specific. Yeah. You have right. a change of brightness, a change of color, a change of shape in a single yeah. frame of footage. I think that's amazing. Now, if you, if you have a lot of cases where you have that, that's great. I'd love to see that data. But the well, point it's, is, it's the point is, well, it's, it's everywhere until <laughs> I see it on footage, then it's real. 
you know, the, the point is, that, okay, so let's assume for a moment that it's corroborative. Okay, what's the point? Well, I, I, for me as a, uh, as a filmmaker, again, on the outside uh, of this world looking in, this is, I think, is rather important because then it's another source outside of Dorothy filming the same type of thing that she says does exist. Yes, I understand. You know, she's got the body of work. That's proof enough. But the fact that it's, it's a second party doing it. I, well, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Fascinating. Well, anybody who's been in the field for a long time, and that would probably include Jim Mosley, right, and others that I've heard mentioned tonight, the fact is we've all seen footage like this. It's not, it's not necessarily unique in that sense, but when you have 30,000 feet of it and you're a single individual in one location... Yeah. Uh, this tends to add a dimension to the whole thing, you know what I mean? I mean, that's the right, point. Right. Listen, I, I, don't, it, I don't think it takes away from anything. This I, is, you know what, Peter, don't take this personally. I'm talking about data here, okay, not personalities right now. Right, right. A, a big part of the problem in the discussion of UFO topics is that it boils down to a discussion of personalities. What we have with Dorothy are two separate things. We have her personality, which, as I stated in the show, I find highly credible. So there's no reason to get defensive about this. What we are talking about is another episode where you have footage who was that was analyzed by Dr. Bruce McAbee, who concluded right. Right. that this footage was definitely not faked, not fabricated, and it was highly unusual. Right. It's not and, something and so, that looks like Dorothy's stuff. It's the exact same type of manifestation. Okay, so what, what is that telling you? It's adding further weight to the evidence that she presents. It's a well, good thing for Dorothy's okay. case, not bad. But, but, but again, again, this is all very fundamental, and you'll have to bear with me because I'm so far past that point. I've had an opportunity to look at her footage, experience what she experiences. You know, it's now down to, it's, it's more, to deeper things with me. If we're going to talk about the subject, that's fine. Uh, her films have been looked at by experts in the past, not very many. Many, unfortunately, but they have been. There's no sign of fraud or chicanery, as I mentioned earlier. Right. She's uh, not the least bit delusional, and you know what I'm talking about. Uh, oh, yeah. No, you know, she's, she's making no claims. So from a researcher's, you talk about being a researcher. Well, from a researcher's standpoint, that's an ideal source because there's not a red flag anywhere in the mix. And so this adds to her credibility. It adds to the significance of the instance of the case. There's enough evidence to choke a horse. So what this says to you is, look, maybe we should talk to the photographer. Mrs. Isaac, what are you experiencing when this happens? And let her tell you. No, well, I, I would have loved to have done that for this show, but unfortunately she wasn't available for it. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack! Attack! of the Rockwell. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, 
The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans a galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack of the Rockoids, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. And we have this evening Frank Longo, Peter Jatilla. They're both responsible for a documentary on Dorothy Isaac and her extraordinary encounters called Capturing the Light. And once again, for those interested in getting a copy, would someone tell them how to do it? At uh, CapturingTheLightDVD.com. CapturingTheLightDVD.com. David. Let's get back to the topic of the nature of the encounter, the way she describes in the documentary, where when the priest in her church, uh, because her, her kids talk about in the documentary her upbringing, and they, they indicate that she was she did have a pretty strong religious grounding in, in Catholicism. So the, the church tells her something along the lines of maybe we're, you're dealing with something demonic, not good. So now she has doubts. And now the nature of the interactions change. Peter, can you give us shed a little light to us uh, yeah, on yeah. how those interactions? Right. right. Yeah. It just so happens that I came from a Catholic background as well, although I was never a churchgoer per se. Yeah. A lot of that fear and doubt was was entered into the, the picture from friends and some relatives. Right. And. Uh, you know, she did think about the church, she did think about the Bible, and she made some attempt to r reconcile this issue. And she realized as she moved along that there was nothing in her experiences to indicate anything evil, if we want to use that term. And so why was she concerned about it? And as soon as she returned to, to you know, some objectivity on this situation, everything kind of readjusted itself and went back to normal, if, if we can call it normal. And uh, so a lot of it had to do with her own fear, with the fear instilled in her by others. And uh, there was a, believe me, to anyone familiar with spiritual topics, uh, meditations, metaphysics, understands this principle that if you entertain a certain frame of mind, if a certain attitude, you will tend to attract or uh, bring to yourself that which corresponds to what you think and believe. And, you know, this is basically what Dorothy uh, felt uh, was the case in her situation. Although, from my standpoint, everything that I saw in the experiences, in her testimony, indicated something quite benign. I mean, there was nothing in there that would lead one to think that it was the path to destruction, that Dorothy was in any danger from anything. I had experiences myself of the light beings, and I have to tell you, what I picked up from my encounter was, it's very strange, but it was a feeling of love. Uh, I know it sounds trite, 
But when I had my encounter with a, with a light being, you just get overwhelmed with a sense of, of love, unconditional love, and, and compassion. That's what you feel. And I don't know about anyone else, but when all the indicators are that what you're dealing with is is benign and and projects love and affection, I don't know about anyone else, but I, I, that's not evil to me. And I don't no. think Dorothy the same way. No, actually, in the, in the documentary, when Dorothy talks about when she was having these negative feelings, she actually specifically describes negative interactions. There was one, right. the one scene she describes these things were sort of appearing in the room and sort of right. fading into the walls. Now, what, what I'm getting at right, with this, right, exactly. just so you understand, is maybe there's a clue in that. And the clue being that uh, perhaps the nature, the tone of the interaction Perhaps the actual reality of the interaction has is more governed by the observer's tone than we think. And this is an important thing because usually right. when we talk about these types of encounters, this component is left out. Right. Um, and right. usually it said, okay, either it was really positive or really negative. But you tend to get that kind of polar, you know, that, that sort of polarization. Right. Right. And, and maybe there's a clue in the fact that as Dorothy changes her attitude about it, the phenomenon seems to reflect that. Right. I mean, well, so, so that's very interesting. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. And this is like, and well, this is so true in in my investigations as well. I mean, anytime you have good, you have bad. I mean, it's a yin yang sort of thing, you know. And I've also noticed that when people um, are investigating in depth certain of these phenomena, that if you change your approach, then the results will change accordingly. It's a very interesting phenomenon, and I don't pretend to understand it, and I don't know that anyone does. It's that old business of light particles versus light waves, you know? Well, that yeah, actually, right, the people <laughs> who understand it are the people studying quantum mechanics. Because, right, yeah, that's what, that's what I mean, yeah. Right, so that brings us to all of a sudden now we can start to connect or attempt to connect the manifestation of a phenomenon with a branch of science that actually is deterministic. Right. right. When you can make that kind of a connection, that's a valuable thing. Now, talking about valuable right. things, right. there's something that happens in the documentary that, of course, when I'm watching the documentary, I'm looking at this footage, it's really fascinating, and then there is the real killer, which is when Frank and the crew are, are videotaping or filming, you'll correct me on that one, Frank, you guys are shooting Dorothy's uh, daughter talking in her kitchen about the first time she now sees one of these things with her mother, and there is something going on outside the window that i got to tell you guys, I saw that, and I'm like, whoa, hello, stop the tape. And I, I went and I ran that back and forth and I said, holy moly, something's going down Dave, here. David, man, imagine how I felt because uh, I, you know, was not aware of that happening Whoa. during the Now, you didn't realize this while you guys were shooting? Well, because you got to understand, I'm interviewing Marilyn. My cameraman is, uh, he's, he's floating, he's not on sticks, and he's, you know, focusing on keeping her center frame. And so, no, I really didn't. It wasn't until I got back to Los Angeles and started digitizing the footage 
when I started seeing, you know, the, the occurrences that you're referring to, and, you know, I, I kind of chuckled to myself at first. I'm like, ha, you know, what? look at that, you know, a car, a car went by, and it looked, you know, or something. And But every time I thought I knew what it was, you know, what was occurring, something else would happen that negated it. And I called, you know, I called my wife over, called friends over, I called the cameraman, or the, the cameraman just freaked out, absolutely freaked out when he saw it. And I was like, okay, what does that look like to you? What does that look like to you? And it just because it, it was so mind-blowing that I'm doing a documentary about a woman who's claiming to be filming these, uh, you know, these crafts, and then I'm, you know, as I'm doing it, then I, too, get this similar footage that she shoots. I mean, what are the chances of that? And that, that quite honestly freaked me out, <laughs> all that footage. Oh, and even I, better than that, what are the chances that this light, and, and again, I'm assuming most of our listeners haven't seen this, but I'll quickly describe this. There is an orange light source which is outside of the window at what is, to my trained eye, a fairly considerable distance. It is, it is well in the background. Uh, we see this initially in a, behind a part of the window where there is no glass. Or there might have been a screen or something, but there's no glass there. That's so it's right. obviously not a reflection. This thing is in the background. And what I really found fascinating was that as the camera changes its angle, this thing moves almost as if it's trying to remain in frame. Yeah, and David, that, that, I mean, that was one of the things. I was like, okay, okay, so Whoa. let me get this right, right. So um, I know there was no light on the camera. You know, it was the, the right. line what we used. And so I'm going, okay, there's some sort of reflection going off the lens, mm. hitting the paned portion of the oh, window. The window. No, no, no. And then uh, another example will come up where it goes from that one side of the pane to the other where there is no window, and it's still right. there, still the same consistency, it's still the same brightness, and immediately that theory goes out the window. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like one yeah. thing after the other, and uh, just mind-boggling. Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer for the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos, and it's all for free. Or drop us a line, MrUFO at WebTV.net. Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your webpage? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I can. Host I can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting, too, for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. How could you go wrong? 
Its reliability and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's Host I Can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. To learn more about Host I Can, go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. And you'll learn more about Host I Can. Hey, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Peter Gatilla and Frank Longo, and they're responsible for a documentary which is called Capturing the Light. And it tells the story of Dorothy Isaac, mother grandmother, who took, what, 30,000 feet of film of her experiences over several decades encountering UFO beings. What a, so, what a legacy. So we have this light outside the window, and, and there are a couple of really fascinating things. The way it moves is highly organic. Now, Frank, I noticed that uh, you know, in the documentary, you have somebody take this footage over to ILM, and, and they, they confirm that this is not a CG effect. This was not done in post. I can absolutely confirm that conclusion as well. I saw that, and that is clearly something that is happening outside it is definitely not a reflection because the first time I noticed it, it's not behind glass. We'll, we'll even leave aside the really interesting thing that you see that follows that on the side of the uh, of the window where there is glass. You yeah. see this much more complex shape with lights flashing on and off. I'm looking at that thinking, okay, even if we're going to assume for a moment that might be a reflection, which it doesn't look like to me, the nature of what it is. To, to have something reflect that, it would be the most bizarre piece of electronic equipment with LEDs across it <laughs> right. that you could and, ever imagine. And coincidental. This no. was, again, another facet that just, uh, this gave me chills is that, you know, a lot of times when Dorothy's filming, when there's multiple lights in the sky, she says, uh, you know, that's a huge craft. It's, a, it's kind of like, uh, as she says, like a, a car at night, you see the headlights, but you don't see the body. But that right. those lights are really uh, a huge craft. But within that, you see one uh, smaller light that's moving through the frame and she calls those scouts and yeah. she says wherever those scouts are there's the, the you know the mothership the larger craft and so again another thing just to really augment this whole experience so there's that one portion right mm -hmm. uh, that's going back and forth uh, what could be like her uh, scouts that she refers to right. dancing around and moving and then sure enough there's this other craft looking I mean it's 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 almost out of close encounters of the third kind. I mean that's the best just way about. I can describe it. Yeah. yeah. And it's 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 just unbelievable. And and the fact I mean, one thing that really gets me is that that it's not, you know, a reflection of something is that how the you know, the camera wasn't on wasn't on legs. It was pre roaming. And that so was hand -held. It, yeah, it was handheld. Hand so that the shape yeah. was remained the same. Oh yeah. The shape remained the same in which it would no way that's not possible. Like if it were a reflection, you know how it is. If you see a reflection, you move from side Absolutely. to side. It changes shapes, or it gets wider, or it gets longer, or whatever. But these lights that you're referring to, it's kind of like they're just going across this huge mothership consistently. That, that, yeah, but that one scout light thing is absolutely, in my opinion, my professional opinion, it's unquestionable. And what is then really compelling 
and says so much about the, the veracity of this is that you go back and you show her family and her this footage and they're sitting in there and I'm, I'm guessing they didn't know it was coming and you're showing them this and all of a sudden you see that piece of uh, light go by and they're like, whoa, wait a minute. And now you're watching their reactions to this and the way that they break up afterwards and they're talking about it and the son-in-law. You know, what's interesting to me is that you've got number a number of family members who are skeptical. Now they see this and that's it. Now they're like, oh, wait a minute. And they're looking out the window and he goes and he checks. And, and that Isn't was that definitely not. Now? It's fascinating. That, I mean, I found that yeah. just pr- priceless in this whole thing. I mean, it's kind of like they're a, a microcosm of, I would say, society in a sense, right, within that family. Yeah. Because yeah. you have somebody there who has this incredible proof, and yet there's still family members that say, yeah, no, you know what, uh, I, I still don't believe it. And then and then an outsider who's not a family member gets this footage, shows it, and then suddenly it's yeah. more believable for some reason. I found that just incredibly uh, compelling we just raised the whole point here do her neighbors the people who live wherever she lives do they know of her of her experiences about this documentary do they know yeah i mean i think that's I don't know about the new place. I mean, she lived in a couple of different places, but when she first started, it, I can say where she first started was Richmond. I don't want to tell you where she lives now because there are people that kind of yeah. like knock on her door. Uh, <laughs> but uh, in Richmond, uh, yeah, certainly that that's kind of how some of the earlier stuff came out about her, you know, a, a blurb in the paper or, you know, uh, just a, a sound bite from her or something like that uh, would get out because it was through friends and family who would tell somebody and they would come over and visit. And she was very, you know, at that time she was open about like yeah come on over check it out so yeah there, there were neighbors i don't know about the the new place the kind of i mean there's not there's, they're not in a location where there's a house on top of a house it's more kind of like a almost like farmland it's just more open now she's yeah, still people have seen it i mean yeah this is how yeah, people would, yeah people would go and, and hang out at her place for a while back in the day just so they could see some of the stuff now uh, a quick question guys she's still taping these things she's still uh, filming these these phenomenon, yes? That's, that's correct, yes. All right. She's finding it harder, though, to, to find 8mm places, though. Uh, these She's days still using 8mm after all these years. Oh. She didn't get the camcorder. Yeah. Well, here's yeah. the thing. I mean, has anybody said to her, you know, start to shoot some of this on a high-def camcorder for, for two reasons, A, resolution, and B, higher frame rate. We have higher frame rates, that's and correct. we can digitize this. No film emulsion. Actually, guys, I would I would say that this would actually provide, in many ways, better data to analyze than the film does. It's possible, but I have to say, as a filmmaker, uh, that the you know being able to hold a physical film and examining that film to me that's more credible than seeing a, you know a UFO Haiti uh, that floated around the YouTube. That's it's just something about the credibility of it being on film. Uh, because, as you know, I mean, 8mm is like a frame is like half the size of your pinky nail. And so to manipulate that image is, is with what you see in her films is, is really, it's just, it's, it's a pretty, pretty impossible unless, it, I mean, even today, I mean. Oh, uh, but but uh, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Let's, let's assume for a moment that we're not going to doubt the veracity of what right. she's shooting, okay? Mm-hmm. So let's put that issue aside. That issue aside, you give her a decent, progressive HD camcorder. And we can get more data out of that. We can do better image analysis with that data. If you put her credibility issue aside, and I'm not, guys, 
I'm no, telling you, hey, I'm, uh, I'm not questioning her credibility. Right. Get us no, better I, data. I think, you, I think you bring up an excellent point, and and to be honest with you, I, I you know I love to follow up. The, the first thing was is just getting the story out there, and you know, I would definitely take that approach uh, if I were to, to do a follow up on this, which you know I may very well do if if people are really interested in her story, because you know the like the documentary is one aspect for sure, and it's just getting the story out. And I would right. certainly do that, and I think it's a great suggestion uh, because I do think it would even take it to another level. Well, yeah, I think uh, that that was my goal all along was to try to get people uh, with resources, with equipment, with expertise involved. I think it's an excellent idea if somebody will yeah. come along and help her out with the. Uh, I'll do it. <laughs> you know, if I if, if I'm going to make a set, uh, another part or an mm -hmm. amendment to this one, I'm certainly going to do that. You know, Frank, you do that, and I will be happy to analyze that footage. And, you know, if there's any issues about her shooting this and having, you know, some, some kind of control over it, you can certainly get an HD camcorder that records to a built-in hard drive. Right, where she could exactly. literally shoot with this thing and then put it in a, in a box and send it off to me. I'll take yeah. the footage right <laughs> off of that, and that's it. That's a closed loop. That's a closed loop. Nobody's yeah. going to tamper with that. You know, that's the bottom line with that. And it has. And then, and then, then you'll come under scrutiny. <laughs> oh, well, listen, that's already the case. But my credentials speak for themselves. And, and yeah, I, you, and you don't know David. David basically is under very close observation, under a microscope right now. Yeah, uh, sort of. Vaguely. Uh, well, let me let me tell you something. Let me interject something here. Better still, Dorothy has always said she's willing to make a contact with others present, and she did it for me. So I would recommend that any researcher, if he's going to call himself researcher, that he should go there and experience one of her contacts. Can I, I just let me just interject on that real, real quick. Uh, I mean, and she certainly has been that very open and receptive, but it has been you know some time since she started making the documentary till now, and she's she's getting up there, and it's not it's really not her that would that would not right, be I, affect I, I, that she yeah. is. Right, uh, I'm aware of that. No, no, I know. I'm just saying for the audience out there. Well, I'm not energy. suggesting that people flock there, but in herds. I'm just saying that. Right. Look, I worked with a number of top researchers in the field. Well, not one of them has shown an interest. If you really want to know what this is about, then do it. Do it the proper way. Dorothy is still able. She's still mentally quite agile. If it's done properly, either through me or through some other person who knows Dorothy and has had contact with her, and if that person is qualified, they can actually have the experience. Well, you know, well, you see, that raises another issue, too, which is that over the years in the UFO field, different researchers have a line of demarcation as to just what they're prepared to accept to investigate. <laughs> and if True. the particular claim doesn't meet or pass muster, doesn't reach that particular threshold of believability to them, and certainly something where you have someone who's year after year contacting alien beings of one sort or another, that is not in their radar. It's under their radar, over their radar. They're not paying attention right. to it. Right. And that's yeah. another thing, too. You're dealing with something here which tends to be one of the more extraordinary UFO encounters. So how do you get positive attention and investigation? You know what? I'll throw 
this out there, guys, because, Peter, you brought this up, so I'll throw this out there, and I'll make an admission now. And, and Frank, I'll tell this to you. When I got the DVD and I watched it and I saw that clip, I took that DVD and I pulled off that one little clip of that light flying back and forth, the scout ship. I digitized a little tiny clip of that, and I sent it to a friend of this show, uh, who everybody in the show knows, Jeff Ritzman. He is my uh, my research partner, and we are also and we, we've done a tremendous amount of work in in debunking images and and analyzing images. I and he's also an extreme experiencer, who uh, Gene and I both have tremendous faith in. I sent him that that little clip of just that footage, and he called me up and he said. And I, I can't say the words on the show now because we're family friendly, but he said, bleep, bleep, I've seen this. Wow. I know what this is. And he said, wow. he, he said to me, can we somehow speak to Dorothy one-on-one? Because he's got a lot of questions about this. And I can tell you this right now, guys. If you're serious about this offer, I will go with Jeff, Jeff Ritzman. I will, we will visit Dorothy. We will take some real gear with us, and we will get some high-def footage. And our corroboration, if this is really happening with her in a way that you're saying, Peter, if she can reproduce this experience, we will go there. Our credibility is very high, and we would be happy to put it to the, to the task of giving Dorothy's story some even more firm foundations, which, again, as I said at the beginning of this, Frank, I, I took a look at this documentary, going into it thinking, well, you know, okay, I'm going to see some more goofy footage here. And when it was done, I thought, man, there is definitely something here. There's not a lot that makes me feel that way, guys. This one really captured my interest, which is why we've got you on the show now. I said to Gene, we've got to get these guys on. This is really fascinating. So I'm throwing this out. Peter, Hey, I'm all, listen, I would be jumping up and down. I, I, uh, I've been trying to do this for umpteen years with not right. a lot of success. And I would tell Frank, too, that this might be a sequel to the Doug. Well, I, I, yeah, I don't want to. Yeah, yeah, we were just going to discuss this on air. Don't commit it to this on air. That would just be dirty. It's but, a free-for-all, Frank. You know. The bottom line is, uh, David, I I personally really appreciate that. I really do. And we should discuss after uh, the interview. Yeah, I think that's really really cool of you. Hey, I'm telling you, uh, man, if you could do it, I've I've had just, I'm at my wit's end with it because I've tried and tried and tried to get somebody to get up there with equipment, with expertise, to sit down and wait it out. And uh, my goodness, the possibilities are amazing to me. Peter, make that call tonight because I'll speak on Jeff's behalf. We'll go do it. Yeah, I, I, I will do my best. Now, keep in mind that Dorothy is elderly. She lives with her daughter now, so there may be some protocols to go through. But that, that's why I was saying. Just, talk, just talk to me after, after the interview, David. And, right. uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 
888-212-2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at the Paracast.com. The gauntlet has been tossed. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We have Peter Gatilla and Frank Longo responsible for the Capturing the Light DVD documentary talking about the strange case of Dorothy Isaac, a grandmother, great-grandmother who has taken 30,000 feet of 8-millimeter film of UFOs being strange phenomena. We're in our final section. So now I'd like to do here, because obviously this is a long story, it'd be nice if we can put this in perspective and compare it with other UFO cases, guys, and you've been following the UFO phenomenon. So is there any other case like this? Because I I see that, you know, maybe in some fundamental ways, there's similarities among contacts, but do you see any resemblance with other specific cases? Well, there, there are similarities. I mean, uh, these are rife in the field. Uh, you know, people have taken still shots, they've taken video shots of, of lights and so forth, and, and structured objects for that matter. I've had uh, some of among your group, I think, are old enough to remember early contactees. And I've had contact indirectly or directly with many of them. And there's no one like her, really. There are cases from around the world that show similar images. When I did Coast to Coast, I was inundated with people who had gotten uh, still uh, shots of similar light patterns and so forth. The majority of them had no idea what it was about. One man told me that he would hear a sound, and when he heard the sound, he would grab his camera, go outdoors, and wait and turn until he felt he should stop, and he did that, and he would get these phenomena on film. You know, there are examples out there, but I know of no cases that are similar in every respect. People have claimed to have, you know, multiple sightings in certain locations. Uh, there are people who claim to be contacts. I'm a little bit wary of people who set themselves up. It's sort of a messianic complex, you know. And I, as a researcher, I've tried to steer clear of these things because generally this is a red flag that there's a little bit of deception, intentional or otherwise, going on. In Dorothy's case, she never made any such claims. Um, she, I asked her one time, as many have, why Dorothy? And she said, I asked them, why me? And their response was, well, is it really that important? And I guess in the long run, it really isn't. Somehow they did, for some reason. If I could interject in that, I, I do have a, you know, I, I think it goes back to her 
this lineage of, of, of clairvoyance in their family. At least that's what they claim, you know. And I think that has something to do with it, that, that she is open enough to be able to, to, to see these right. things. Right, um, exactly. I don't know. I don't know what that all means, you know, like how, how somebody's more open than can see things that other people can't see. I don't know how that works. I, well, I there are know. a lot of psychics, though, Frank. <laughs> right. you know, there are a lot of psychics right. out there. Right. And, and, and they don't have this kind of fear. And just to add, uh, as far as any other cases being out there, Absolutely none that have film like this. That right. I, I, you know, that that's from my limited knowledge of, of other UFO occurrences happening. But I, I, I know of none that are on film that hold this massive body of work. And that, and that to me, again, is okay. what I could really sink my teeth into was, was the physical footage. Silly question about that, Frank and, and Peter. Uh, all of the footage you saw in the documentary, and there's not a there's not a lot of it. I wish the whole documentary was nothing but footage. That'd be fine. But it's not, and, that, and that's, there's no problem with that. My question is, is there any footage of day, daylight footage of structured objects? All, pretty much all the footage we see is nighttime stuff. The, the um, majority I have seen, yeah, is nighttime stuff. She does, yeah. uh, she has filmed some in the daylight. I, I guess I hadn't seen anything or come across anything that was you know, <laughs> compelling to me. You know, uh, but that doesn't that doesn't mean I haven't seen all of her stuff. Uh, so yeah, you know what intrigues me more, if I may interject, and I'm sorry, Frank didn't mean to. Not a problem. I did it anyway, as you noticed. <laughs> <laughs> but what intrigues me more than that are the indoor uh, foot, the indoor footage. Now, if she once took a shot of a of a still photo, and when she developed the film. The still photo came alive and flashed. Now, what they told her about this was is that these are the light beings now, uh, that the light is a living light, for want of a better or more accurate description. It's almost sentient in itself, organic almost, in that it manifests clearly in any medium and transmits something to the viewer. So that, for instance, if you you can put it, you can digitalize it, you can you can put it into still images, you can fax it, you can copy it on a copier, and whoever will look at that image will receive some benefit from the original light. And to indicate to, to prove this somewhat, uh, Dorothy took up, uh, some footage of a still photo, and it actually flashed and came alive uh, from the still image. When I had heard about that, I you know I had already shot the the, the majority of the documentary, and it was a casual conversation I was having with Peter. I just, just gave him up, you know, being right. with, you know, with the documentary, and he had mentioned that, and I was like, what? No way. <laughs> so what I, I, I you know it's just one of the, it's another level to her work that it's just I just well, you know I, I what, well, let me finish though I, no, know, I had to I had to check into so what I did was is I purchased some 8mm film I sent it to Dorothy and there were some of those uh, blown up uh, frames of her uh, stills that I used for the backdrops of, of some of the interviews and I just said film just go ahead and film those some of those images and don't develop just send it back to me so she sent she shot some of those uh, backdrops sent it back to me and I got it developed and the result is in the uh, documentary as you see which is referring you know okay now substantiates what Peter is mentioning well let me control, interject one point well, well, well before you do Peter control question did anybody but Dorothy shoot this or did only Dorothy do that. This particular example, yeah, that, that was Dorothy shooting. Yeah, only Dorothy shot. Right. Has it been done the other way? 
that somebody else shot. I see, I know over the years, and Peter would know more about this than I, that people have gone with cameras to film, and this is just another level to where I don't really understand it, but, you know, she'll say that right over there, and she'll start filming, and other people go, where? And they don't see it, what she sees. So I don't, I don't understand how that works. How about someone else shooting the still image with film? Yeah, it should be done. It should be done, and it should be done in a controlled way, and it would be quite interesting to see the result. But then it could be proximity. It could be Dorothy's mere presence in in the taking of of the uh, of the shot. So it's hard to say. Well, I'll tell you, this is not surprising to people with a, a background in psychic phenomena and so forth. You know, we've all heard of people who can heal through music. Somehow uh, they'll play a violin or something like that, and it can produce physical healing in some people. I mean, this is well known. It's been known to the yogis. It's been known to the sages. It's been, you know, part of that world for a long, long time. So the idea that a light can manifest some effect in the environment through a non-active image is not surprising. It can happen. There were some sages years ago, and I had an opportunity to listen to mantra that were being intoned and taped. And these mantra produced effects in people who listened to them, the tape recordings, not the actual persons doing the mantra. This is not entirely without precedent. And uh, I found it fascinating when she took her images of the still uh, picture. But then again, she has other footage of indoor light, uh, the room just exploding in light. This is either, you know, and again, Dorothy has asked why me. There is some reason for this, and some reason why Dorothy, if people get my book, they'll read about the, uh, the hypnosis that was done for Dorothy to try to bring her back to something that may have triggered all this. And it is quite fascinating. But whether we can prove it beyond a doubt, there are some bits of proof in the book that I think are kind of kind of compelling. But uh, 100%? I, I, no. But for some reason, she's able to do these things. In fact, in fact, it thrilled Jewel Eisenbud years ago. If anyone remembers Jewel Eisenbud and Ted Sirius, you know, that whole thing, but where a man was able to project images on Polaroid film. And that business but he was fascinated by Dorothy because he, he he was looking to see if this was a possible similar case but then later on concluded that it was not so somehow she is a magnet for these things and films them and I've said it all along to people look the films don't lie take a look at them examine them I mean sit down with Dorothy or 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 you know visit and and let her establish contact and experience for yourself. You know, it's an open door in a manner of speaking. Although I caution anyone now that she is getting up in age. So I'm not sure how how willing she might be to get in, into anything that, that is arduous. And, and, you know, the family is, is uh, very protective of her because she is getting up there in age. So, like I said, we'll talk off air about All right. All right. proposal. Well, I'll go on record here uh, on the Paracast, and you know we're we're known as being a place where we talk about this stuff seriously, guys. But where we do question the veracity and validity of claims. But you know, after watching the documentary, and, and I'm not going to address the stuff flying in frame. And I, I was actually thankful that we didn't go there, where there's this like stuff floating by 
in the frame, and, and there are some thoughts that maybe that's unusual, which, which I don't think it is. So I'm going to put that part of the documentary aside. There's just like a few minutes spent on that, which is definitely on the edge. And, and actually, to be perfectly honest with you, didn't need to be in there. That's a whole other story. But in terms of the overall presentation, in terms of what Dorothy says has been happening to her that she talks about in the documentary, it sounds like we need to do another episode to find out all the things that weren't in the documentary. <laughs> It sounds like there's a bunch of stuff in there. Maybe right. maybe Frankie need to do another one. We'll see about well, that. Well, that's exactly the point. The point, uh, what I keep trying to say is that, you know, this, uh, you don't throw all that in in the first one. It's too yeah, much for yeah. people to absorb. Yeah, uh, you, uh, just, you know, you got to make it reach a, a wider audience to bring awareness to it, to, to have the opportunity to meet people like you uh, who are willing to take the next step. I also have you to know. wonder, guys, whether there's another Dorothy Isaac somewhere or more <laughs> than that because as you probably know a lot of the claims that you folks have probably investigated that David and I have read about don't pass muster so if this is the genuine article there ought to be other people she can't be sitting there alone being the only one these entities are communicating with there have to be a lot of other people yeah Yeah, isn't it amazing that she had the presence of mind to actually photograph these things. Oh, she said, I mean, she has said that, uh, that during uh, these times and, and as we go forward here that more people will start to see them. And uh, mm. that's, I thought it was uh, that your example that you had brought up earlier about the pilot uh, film is very similar. I think that's an amazing thing because it does just add a, a level of credibility. And I think there are now other people out there who are, who are starting to. I just, I just, Jeff Rentz sent me something the other day, something that looked similar not quite like Dorothy's, but very similar to it. And, I, and I, that's kind of like a testimony to her calling and saying, you know, that the, the people are going to start seeing this stuff more. Well, I think when we get past this stage, uh, then it will be time for the deeper message involved in all this, which is where I'm at at this point. You know, I want to just ask you before we go on here, and we only have a few minutes left, in terms of future investigation, and obviously there's not a lot of time because we all hope that Dorothy lives to be 105, but when you're in your 80s, you have to look at the ticking clock, and there are considerations about that. The Other than digitizing her footage, what else are you guys planning? Another documentary, possibly, or possibly. what else? For, for Dorothy, I can say that she, she's really picking up, uh, picking up the pace in regards to documenting, what, kind of like what Peter was mentioning earlier, uh, docking, actually going through each piece of her occurrences and narrating what's going on and what's happening. That's really the next goal. Uh, for her is to just get that all uh, said and done right. because without her like Peter said I mean it, there'll certainly be amazing things that we, that we see but there's nothing like having her, her voice say you know tell us what it is that she's experiencing so that is the next thing for her now you gotta keep in mind see that's like 15, 16, 17 plus hours of, of uh, footage that she has but that's yeah. a very daunting task but uh, certainly uh, the next step is, is to get at least at the very least, get all her footage digitized so it can be stored right. safely. Guys, best before we let you go, we're down to just a few minutes. Can you tell our listeners again about the documentary and where they get a copy? Uh, thanks so much, guys. I appreciate that. Uh, you can uh, check out some trailers and get a copy of Capturing the Light at CapturingTheLightDVD.com. And since it hasn't been mentioned, I would like to mention uh, Peter's book, uh, which is called Contact with Beings of Light that you can get on Amazon. Okay, Contact yeah. with Beings of Light. Oh, right. The, the rest of the title is The Amazing True Story of Dorothy Wilkinson Isaac. Now, is that book 
kind of accompanying the DVD in terms of its focus and structure or what? No, no, not at all. I mean, Peter, as you know, just listening tonight, he gets he gets more into the depth of the meaning behind it, the more philosophical angle of, of uh, what's going on. And the book was out years before, several years yeah. before uh, the documentary. Plus a biography. And it basically gives a, a, a an abbreviated uh, history of Dorsey's life and experiences. Okay. There's a, little bit, there's a little bit in the book that discusses the philosophical, but most of these are directly related to uh, incidents mm-hmm. and the information that you've gathered from them. And I'd like to point out, too, if anyone wants to contact me, Peter Gatilla at AOL.com. Okay, you spell your last name for everybody to know. Yeah, it's G as in George, U, double T as in Tom, I, double L, A, Peter Gatilla at AOL.com. Okay, so if they have more questions, get in touch with you, and maybe one hopes they have an experience that might be of a similar nature. That is worthy of this investigation. Now, David, so you and Jeff are ready to go there and try to find out what's going on, huh? Do it, man. Absolutely. Mm. Can I just also add something? Uh, if somebody does have a similar occurrence, uh, you can also contact me as well through the CapturingTheLightDVD.com. There's a button that says Contact, and that'll get, send an email directly to me. And you also have a small <laughs> forum that you started there. so of course, Right, right. right. And, and there is a forum set up, and if anybody wants to share any of their stories, uh, they can absolutely post it there. Right. I, I sure hope somebody does something before it's too late. And uh, Agreed. Uh, that would please me, believe me, and would vindicate a lot of time that I dedicated to the subject. I think we'll try to help there, Peter. That sounds good. And, ladies and gentlemen, we will hopefully have a follow-up, maybe a follow-up show, follow-up information, if David and Jeff get a chance to look at it. So, once again, we've been talking on the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, with Frank Longo, Peter Gatilla, both responsible for the Capturing the Light DVD documentary, chronicling the experiences filming UFOs and communicating with UFO knots by Dorothy Isaac. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us on the Paracast. You're welcome. Thank you guys so much. Really appreciate the time. Excellent. Thank you. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast. 